I got the opener this week. Headline on this one. I'm just going to start with it. I'm going to go with it. Orcas are ramming boats off the Spanish coast, puzzling experts and myself because I didn't even know that they had orcas. I guess that makes sense on the one side. They wouldn't be in the Mediterranean. Let's read more about it. Pod of orcas repeatedly rammed a yacht in the Strait of Gibraltar this week, damaging it enough to require Spanish rescuers to come to the aid of its four crew members. Are they going to get the orcas opinion on this? Maybe they deserved it. It is a yacht. We'll have to wait to see to the end where they say that we asked the orcas for their statement or they have not replied to a request for statement. It's coming. Okay. (laughs) So it was the latest episode in a perplexing trend in the behavior of orcas populating the Atlantic coast off the Iberian Peninsula that has left researchers searching for a cause. Spain's Maritime Rescue Service said that the orcas repeatedly ran into the Mustique, a 20-meter vessel sailing under a UK flag late on Wednesday, rendering its rudder inoperative and cracking its hull. Rescuers needed to pump out seawater before towing her to safety. The alert reached the Spanish service via their British counterpart who relayed the distress call. The Spanish service said a helicopter and a rescue boat were deployed to help the damaged boat to dock in Barbate. This is the 24th, wow, such incident registered by the service this year. The service didn't provide data from last year. But the Atlantic Orca Working Group, a team of Spanish and Portuguese marine life researchers who study orcas near the Iberian Peninsula, say such incidents were first reported three years ago. In 2020, the group registered 52 such events, some of which resulted in damaged rudders that increased to 197 in 2021 and 207 in 2022. What are we at for this year? 24. 24. That's a good memory. The orcas seem to be targeting boats in a wide arc covering the western coast of the peninsula from the waters near the Strait of Gibraltar to Spanish Northwest Galicia. So they are mustering together against the boats, it looks like. It's all the same offenders that spend most of the year near the Iberian coast in pursuit of red tuna. The so-called Iberian orcas average from 5 to 6.5 meters in length compared to the orcas in Antarctica, which can reach 9 meters. They're all over the ocean. Eh? Oh yeah. Why did they just think they're in the PNW? <laughs> yeah, I always thought that too. Sure. But like, no, they're in Australia. They're in the Antarctic. They're all along South America. I didn't expect there to be Spanish orcas. Yep. There's no attacks against swimmers, just yachts, apparently, from what I gather from this article. And the interactions on boats seem to stop once the vessel becomes immobilized. Holy shit, that is scary. They have sentience about them. <laughs> they're actually going to like break the boats. Yeah, I've liked the theory that they're just heavily anti-capitalist at this point as they're taking the bourgeois class. This is a feel-good story. Good for them. I feel like good for them at this point. In recorded history, wild orcas actually have never killed a human. So I feel like they're not in the wrong here as orcas have rarely actually been on the wrong side of history. Well, that's a great... Humans more often than not have been on the wrong side of history. They very well have. And there's not a whole lot of things that are on the right side of history. Here it is right here. Orcas have not responded for a comment on the article. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad they at least reached out. Yeah. Well, they didn't. (laughs) They've not responded. 
No, the reporter reached out. Oh, yes. Not, yes, not the orcas. They did. they did. I mean, there's a really nice picture in this article. It is of a orca ramming the side of the boat. Just kidding. It's not. It's just going under the ocean. But, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what their motives are against the boats, what it's ever done to them. I actually find it quite probably. hilarious that several of the subreddits that are anti-status quo and anti-imperialist. Okay, I thought you were going to say orca. No, hmm. have taken these guys on as like their mascots because they <laughs> appear to be just attacking the upper class because like you even saw in the article it was a yacht that they it attacked, was a yacht not a dinghy yeah <laughs> i like it i gotta say i'm on the orca side too at this point just giving the information i now have so good for them there's also a little thing that says that orcas communicate with each other but not reporters clearly <laughs> no only each other they do not go outside their species so they have a culture obviously they're getting together against these boats for some reason. Yeah, and I should just make a clarifying statement on what I said earlier about orcas never having killed anybody. It Uh is just wild orcas, as captive orcas have killed people before. I mean, with... Within reason. I can't blame them. And these boats have obviously done something to them. So, I mean, they're in the rain on that too, in my mind. Yeah, boats too long have had priority, I guess, over the sea. The orcas being the more pushy of the whale Mm -hmm. category are finally fighting back. Obviously. They are the apex predator. They, in fact, even feed on great white sharks. So. Really? Oh, yeah. I know that. I don't think. You might have. I don't know. It's hard to say. (laughs) But yeah, feel good story to start this episode off. Love it. And with that, let's get into this episode. Okay. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, here to reveal some uncomfortable truths to you, the listener. Like Christians, you either worship Jesus Christ or you're Christians. You can't have it both ways. What a good point. Also, we mostly discuss fringe topics. We are your podcast hosts, Taylor and Chelsea. And today, we take a look at the fringy side of a fairly mundane and normal topic in in a different way than our usual mundane fringiness. And that is, of course, the Smithsonian Museum. Now, you might think, why would somebody talk about this on a Fringe Topic podcast? And which I would say to you, then you clearly have not been in the conspiracy community that often. Because, boy, (laughs) does it show up for some reason a lot. And if you haven't, then welcome. And if you haven't, then welcome. We will guide you through it. Yes. So today's episode is on the Smithsonian Museum. It is the U.S. government's basically institutional museum side. We're going to get into where it comes from, why it's called the Smithsonian, what it encompasses, and more importantly from there, the controversies that have plagued it from the fringy side. I'm excited. And without further wait, let's just get right into this. So why is it called the Smithsonian Museum? Well, strangely enough, it's going to start with a guy named Jacques-Louis Macy, a man who has never and will never set foot in the United States. Okay, did he commit crimes? He committed, as far as I can tell, no crimes other than the accumulation of wealth that was not his own. Okay, is he dead? Very much so, yes. Okay, that's why. Got you. He is born in Paris in 1765, the illegitimate child of Elizabeth Hungerford, Keith Macy, and Hugh Percy, whose original name was Hugh Smithson. Did you just say three people? No, it's one of those fancy people names, so there's a lot of names involved. So Elizabeth Hungerford, Keith Macy is one person. Okay. And Hugh Percy, who is Hugh Smithson, is another person. Okay, I'm glad we clarified that. 
And Hugh Smithson, he was the first Duke of Northumberland, Hugh Percy. This child at birth is given the name Jacques-Louis Macy. His birth date was not recorded, so we don't know the exact date or location of his birth, but it is possible that it was in Pentamont Abbey. Shortly after his birth, he became a naturalized British citizen because, you know, you've got some fancy people in your family, and he was given the anglicized name James Louis Macy. He adopted his father's original surname later on in 1800 of Smithson, following his mother's death. He attended university at Pembroke College, Oxford in 1782, eventually graduating with a Master's of Arts in 1786. As a student, he participated in a geological expedition to Scotland and studied chemistry and mineralogy. This is a guy who is very well off and never really has to settle on a specialty. He's well off, yet he was an illegitimate Illegitimate child. child. They weren't married. Well, that was the fancy thing to do at the time. Okay. Yeah, because you know, again, this is even like pre-Liars Clubs. So you had mistresses. Right. I forgot about that history. TV really changed modern society. Smithson was a nomad by lifestyle, traveling throughout Europe, and as a student in 1784, he participated in a geological expedition with Bartholomew Faja de Saint-Fond, one person there again, William Thornton, and Paolo Andriani, to Scotland and especially the Herbides. He was in Paris during the French Revolution, not a great place to be a rich person, but he does survive, and in August 1807, Smithson became a prisoner of war while intoning during the Napoleonic Wars. He arranged a transfer to Hamburg, where he was again imprisoned and now by the French. The following year, Smithson wrote to Sir Joseph Banks and asked him to use his influence to gain release, and Banks succeeded, and Smithson got to return to England. So, you know, all over the map, this guy. Mm -hmm. In 1766, and this is outside of the linear story, his mother inherited from the Hungerford family of Studley, where her brother had lived up until his death, and his controversial legal stepfather, John Marsh Dickinson, who I believe is just known as Dickinson. Of course. (laughs) John Marsh Dickinson of Stabble died in 1771. Smithson's wealth stemmed from the splitting of his mother's estate with his half-brother, Colonel Henry Louis Dickinson. His sciencing, like I said, is very eclectic. He was very well off, so he didn't really need to specialize and do it for the money. He studied subjects ranging from coffee making to the use of calamine, eventually renamed Smithsonite in making brass. He also studied the chemistry of human tears, snake venom, and published 27 papers over the course of his life. And this is just all for pleasure. Yeah. He was nominated to the Royal Society of London by Henry Cavendish and was made a fellow on April 26, 1787. What the hell is a fellow? I know. It's a very fancy title. What is it? I always hear that term and it's, I don't know what it actually means. It just means like you're a fancy science person or a fancy expert in your field. All it says is man or boy, which is what I would know it as, but you used it in a different context. Yes. So I'm not sure what it is. Okay, I accept that. Within the context of higher educational institutions, a fellow can be a member of a highly ranked group of teachers at a particular college or university or a member of the governing body in some universities. It can also be a specially selected postgraduate student who has been appointed to a post called a fellowship, granting a stipend, research facilities, and other privileges for a fixed period. I guess it does change depending on like who you're talking to it about. Yeah, I wasn't rolling with the fellowship crowd. That's why I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Yeah, we were never on fellowship tracks. We were never. (laughs) Okay, let's continue. 
Over the course of his career, Smithson socialized and worked with many scientists. Some of them, you may know their names. I only theorize I know who Henry Cavendish is based on bananas. The Cavendish banana. I've only heard of the name. Not even the banana. Okay. But he also worked and socialized with Joseph Priestley, Sir Joseph Banks, Antoine Lavoisier, and Richard Kerwan. Probably very great names. He explored and examined Kirkdale Cave. His findings published in 1824 successfully challenged previous beliefs that the fossils within the formation at at Cave were from the Great Flood. So he was great at dispelling misconceptions as well. Okay. He is also credited with first using the word silicates, which is a fancy sciencey rock word. I'll believe you on that one. So he does all this fancy science work, and he was so busy with it, he never got married, he never had any kids, and he had this wealth, a huge wealth. At the time, I was trying to figure it out. It was about 100,000 gold sovereigns, which I was looking up what that means in today's (laughs) words. It's about $45 million. Okay, that's a lot. And there's so many words being used in this episode that are just so above what I surround myself with. So Smithson dies in 1829, June 27th, in Genoa, Italy. In his will, written in 1826, Smithson left his fortune to the son of his brother, that is, his new nephew, Henry James Dickinson. Dickinson had to change his surname to Hungerford as a condition of receiving this inheritance. And also, it was stated in the will that Henry James Hungerford, or Hungerford's children, would receive his inheritance. And that if the nephew did not live and had no children to receive the fortune, it would be donated to the United States to establish an educational institution to be called the Smithsonian Institute. Is that foreshadowing? A little bit. It's a little soft for us, but it is there. What a bizarre will. Like, what a bizarre stipulation. Well, when you're looking at estate planning, a lot of people want to keep money in their family, no matter where it will go. So he would put it to a nephew, the only nephew. Okay. And then the exception there, if we can't keep it in the family, I want my name to live on forever. So that's basically what he's doing. Okay, it makes sense when you put it that way. And then Henry Hungerford dies on June 5th, 1835, never got married and had no children. So the U.S. ends up getting this cash. And this is basically what it says in the will. I then bequeath the whole of my property to the United States of America to found at Washington under the name of the Smithsonian Institute an establishment for the increase in diffusion of knowledge among men. So this money ends up going to the U.S., a place where he had never set foot. So it's a little weird about that. I was that. just going to say why the U.S.? My theory is because everything's so established in Europe that that money's not going to get your name attached to anything. Okay. You're not going to get the Oxford University renamed or Cambridge or anything like that renamed with this kind of cash. Fair enough. Okay. And this is a place that is like burgeoning. There's a lot of unexplored areas. So he probably thought that an institution in that area would be necessary at some point. And it's likely that he could get his name attached to it. Okay. But this is just speculation on my part. It was really hard to find anything that really explained why he specifically did it. That makes sense. So let's just run with that. And so established was the Smithsonian Institute. However, it wasn't just his money. It was the government of the U.S. had always wanted to set up a science institution from its inception. And I guess just getting this little bit of money nudged them towards doing it. And it wasn't actually always known as the Smithsonian Institute. Today, it is known as Smithsonian Institution, or simply the Smithsonian. And it is a group of 
of museums, education, and research centers, and the largest such complex in the world, created by the U.S. government for the increase and diffusion of knowledge. And it was founded on August 10th, 1846, 10 years after they officially got that money in the will. It operates as a trust instrumentality and is not formally a part of any of the three branches of the federal government. It just gets funding from it. It was originally organized as the United States National Museum, but the name ceased to exist administratively in 1967 when Smithsonian is the only name it goes by. It is commonly called the nation's attic because it houses some 154 to 155 million different museum items, all catalog and some stored, some out for viewing pleasure. The institution includes 19 museums, 21 libraries, nine research centers, the nation's zoo, and other architectural landmarks mostly located or in and around the District of Columbia. Okay, that answers my next question. Additional facilities are located in Maryland, New York, and Virginia, and more than 200 institutions and museums in 45 states, Puerto Rico, and Panama are Smithsonian affiliates. Institution publications includes the Smithsonian and the Air and Space magazine. Whoa, that's a lot of stuff. Almost all of the institution's 30 million annual visitors are admitted into these museums and other things free of charge, except for one of these facilities called the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, which charges an admission fee. Its annual budget is around $1.25 billion, with two-thirds coming from annual federal appropriations. Other funding comes from the institution's endowment, private and corporate contributions, membership dues, and earned retail concession and licensing revenue. As of 2021, the institution's endowment had a total value of about $5.4 billion. Also, just a few things that weren't quite in there, but also good to know. They have 2.2 million library volumes, 148,200 cubic feet of archives, 2,981 scholarly publications. So a lot of stuff happens. It includes a lot of museums, a lot of research. At this point, you might be wondering, what's the conspiracy? Where is the fringiness coming from? Maybe it's the relationship to Mr. Smithson here and why he set it up. Well, surprisingly, no. Then there are actually quite a few different conspiracies about the Smithsonian. I'm going to touch on a few that we're not actually going to talk about at all. And this isn't the first time it's actually come up in an episode. Do you remember the Hope Diamond that we talked about in The Cursed Objects? Yes. It is in the Smithsonian. Right. I think he said that. that it's yeah. There. And I, I'm pretty sure the delivery guy like died on the way delivering it. <laughs> If yeah. I'm thinking of the right one. I think so too, but it's also if I'm thinking of the right one. Also, things of note that they've been accused of, or at least people have speculated on. The Smithsonian Institute went in search of Noah's Ark at Mount Ararat, which they deny. Antiques Department turns down so-called prehistoric artifacts that are out of place, which they deny, and say that most of the people that are saying that they're sending them there are just straight up lying and not sending them. And there is an archive center underneath the National Mall in Washington, D.C., which also they say isn't true and they have lots of warehouse space anyways that we don't need to think about like why they would have to have a secret one underneath the middle of washington dc for the secrets of course yeah of course but the two that we are going to talk about are a lot of fun chelsea i think you've at least heard of both of them and we're going to dig into these stories and where they kind of come from we'll see so this is the title of an article that i found on gaia tv <laughs> written by the ever famous gaia staff that's all it says is the author so you know it's um what yeah some somebody wouldn't even put their name to this which is hilarious. that could be david wilcock that yeah could be... <laughs> if it could be Corey good it probably in fact was Corey good at gunpoint and he refused to get his name on it of course well whoever wrote it was definitely at gunpoint <laughs> <laughs> 
The title of this article is This Conspiracy Claims the Smithsonian Destroys Giant Skeletons by Gaia Staff, written on November 11th, 2019. That just makes it credible. Yeah. And this is the one we're going to talk about first. The Smithsonian Institute is ever present in the covering up and disposal of giant skeletons found across North America. I have heard of this. Now, originally, I started with the Snopes article because it's always fun to kind of start with the debunk that they do. And I find it really lacking, but we're going to talk about it anyways. This is the article straight from Snopes. Kim LaCapria wrote this on December 17th, 2014. Did the Smithsonian destroy thousands of giant human skeletons? The claim. The Supreme Court ordered the Smithsonian Institute to disclose that it destroyed several giant skeletons in the early 1900s to preserve the mainstream narrative of evolution. Now, I do apologize. It's called the Smithsonian Institution. I call it the Smithsonian Institute because I don't like saying institution. It's just too long. But the full name is institution. I like that you're not just calling it the Smithsonian. I can just call it the Smithsonian. Easy enough. On December 3rd, 2014, World News Daily Report published an article titled Smithsonian Admits to Destruction of Thousands of Giant Human Skeletons in Early 1900s. In that article, the site reported the Smithsonian colluded with unspecified parties to suppress information providing the existence of giants and the Supreme Court ruled in 2014 that documentation of the discovery be classified in 2015. A number of factors in this story claim conflict with the standard template for junk news, but the article also follows a formula in several ways. On the latter score, searches for the American Institution of Alternative Archaeology, which is included in the story, point back either to the article itself or to other pages referencing this article, a strong indicator that the organization does not exist. Furthermore, the claim regarding Smithsonian guarding classified documents is unusual, as the earliest technical classification of documents in the United States goes back only as far as World War One. Whereas the discovery of giant skeletons is dated vaguely as occurring in the early 1900s, prior to the First World War, and the need to classify documents as we would today had not yet come to issue, and such a measure would be even less likely to apply to an archaeological discovery. An image on World News Daily report claimed was taken in Ohio in 2011 has existed on the internet since 2008, and prior references identify the location as a picture as Turkey, not Ohio. And the date initially claimed of the image back then was that it was taken in the 1990s. Another image of giant skulls included with the article dated to a 2008 claim made on the website of the Coast to Coast radio program. Yet another image frequently attached to other versions of the claim depict Edouard Beaupre, French-Canadian man afflicted with gigantism who died in 1904. A sideshow celebrity at the time, Beaupre's existence was hardly a secret and certainly not classified by the Smithsonian. Finally, no such Supreme Court decision existed exists, and if it did, it would have been a matter of public record and widely reported in mainstream publications due to its notability. I think that's enough of that article to kind of like show you what they're focusing on, but I feel it's a real cop-out because yes, they're pointing to this one particular article, but the claims that the Smithsonian is covering up giant skeletons being found goes back way further than 2014. It goes far back as the early 1800s. Oh. You can find newspaper articles all over the internet of giant skeletons being found in the New World and their skeletons being shipped to the Smithsonian Institute for further research. So they could just, in this article, they completely disregard the fact that these articles exist and just say that this one article is clearly fake and that's where it all comes from, yeah. which I find a little bit of a cop-out. So I decided to do a little bit more research of my own and give you guys an idea of why exactly people in the 1800s or why people were sending giant skeletons to the Smithsonian Institution in the early 1800s to the early 1900s, or if they actually work. Chelsea, we're going to learn a bit about North American history, which I did not know, but I find incredibly interesting. During the 19th century, 
which would be the 1800s, there was a widespread belief in North America that there is a prehistoric lost race. And I should just warn you, this is going to be one of those histories of mythological things that ends up ending in racism, ethnocentrism, and a genocide. From the time period, I would just assume that. But it's just funny how many episodes that we end up doing end up coming back to this theme. It is a disturbing amount, yes. During the 19th century, there was a widespread belief in North America of a prehistoric lost race. European settlers embraced this myth of pre-Columbian settlement from the Old World, which reframed colonization as the continuation of a primordial past in which the roles of Native people were diminished or dismissed through a process that historian Douglas Hunter described as white tribism. The settlers interpreted signs of intellectual and cultural capabilities in North American ruins as signs that white people put them there and were the creators. White Americans developed myths around what are known as the Great mound builder races, which describe a rationale for the colonization of American Midwest. The various versions of the myth held that the massive earthworks along the Mississippi Valley, like Grave Creek Mound and the Great Serpent Mound, were not built by ancestors of North Americans, as is now widely believed. And according to the myths, the Indians had exterminated the prehistoric white race of mound builders. This cast genocidal violence towards the Native Americans as defensive or retributive. Josiah Priest, American Antiquities, released in 1833, crystallized the idea of a lost race mentioned in the book of Genesis that created the monuments of North America before being exterminated by savages. Between 1812 and the American Civil War, nearly all Americans writing about the continent's history used this myth of the white mound building races. And it was so prominent that there is a famous quote from a statement made by Abraham Lincoln. This was made in 1848. It's called Niagara Falls. It calls up the indefinite past when Columbus first sought this continent, when Christ suffered on the cross, when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, nay, even when Adam first came from the hand of his maker. Then as now, Niagara was roaring here. The eyes of that species of extinct giants, whose bones fill the mounds of America, have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. Contemporary with the whole race of men, and older than the first man, Niagara is strong and fresh today as 10,000 years ago. Relation to Niagara, eh? <laughs> yeah. I did not know, like, it was so prominent that the president of the time would make a statement just about how casually, yeah, the giants were around, don't worry about it. They too saw Niagara Falls. <laughs> Preachers of the time taught a biblical basis for the primordial race, including connections to the lost tribes of the Nephilim, which you hear a lot in Conspiracy World, giants from the book of Genesis. And Joseph Smith incorporated this pre-Columbian white race into the Mormon teachings. Hundreds of newspaper articles credulously describe the purported discovery of the giant skeletons, sometimes with anatomical irregularities attributed to the Nephilim. For example, a massive skeleton unearthed in Tennessee toured the state as a specimen for this lost race. The reconstructed skeleton was mounted to a timber frame in a standing position with missing bones recreated from wooden rawhide. Preachers, doctors, and journalists confirmed it to belong to the genus Homo, despite a standing height estimated up to 20 feet tall, as it would be described. When the giant was taken to New Orleans, medical doctor William Carpenter found it to be a young Macedon's remains, and Carpenter reported that there was not fraud, and the man exhibiting the bones boxed them up after discovering that they were not human, but rather a widespread desire to believe. The Macedon's 
ceased to be exhibited as a person, but soon after purported giants were unearthed, exhibited, reported, or sold for profit all over the country. Throughout the 19th century, some scholars expressed doubt about the excavation of purported giants, but had little impact on public perception. Many readers embraced the skeletons as evidence of biblical history against unpopular experts whose discoveries undermined a literal interpretation of the Bible. With a rise in white literacy rates and the emergence of the cheaper penny press newspapers, there was a strong market for these tales that gave them greater impact than all university scholarship that would be coming out at the time. Stories frequently ran presenting as straight fact, hoaxes, scams, and misinterpretations of extinct megafauna. Some newspapers outright just fabricated stories. Ethnologist Cyrus Thomas spent years compiling his report on the mound explorations for the Smithsonian Institute, which is where the Smithsonian starts to come in here, and the 1894 in-depth study on North America's earthworks provided over 700 pages of conclusive evidence that they were built by the native people as they were at the day, not a race of white giants. Thomas's report shifted academic attitudes, but news reports of giant skeletons continued to come out for decades afterwards. It was common for the stories to claim that the bones were then sent to the Smithsonian Institute and the Smithsonian's Bureau of Ethnology did encourage those excavating mounds to send the Native American bones to their mound exploration division, which is where this story kind of meets a little bit of fact and fiction. Prior to the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, the Smithsonian collected over 18,000 of these skeletons. However, the sensationalist newspaper articles were often invoking the Smithsonian name only in order to lend their own article credibility. Nothing would actually be sent for these articles. In 1934, Alice Herdica, which, uh, Herdlika, curator of anthropology at the Smithsonian Institution, rejected the existence of a race of giants between seven and eight feet tall. Herdlika blamed the will to believe for the many reports of giants' discoveries. Herdlika blamed amateur anthropologists for being fooled by bones, and he stated that people were most often fooled by the length of the femur bone because they are often not familiar with how human anatomy works, so when they see a femur, it's often not placed right into the skeleton, so people think that they're longer than they are. He also stated in 1934 that reports of giant skeletons occurred about two or three times every month. So it was common, like, way up in history in North America. In 2020, the Columbus Dispatch reported that archaeologist Donald Ball collected articles about giant skeletons, which were purportedly found in burial mounds dating back as far as 1845, and he determined that when the claims about giant skeletons were scrutinized, they didn't reveal giant skeletons. One story in the Indianapolis Journal reported on August 29, 1883, that a nine-foot skeleton had been found. Dr. M.M. M. Adams investigated and concluded that the bones were not of a giant, and the individual was not above the height of five feet eight inches. He determined that it was a giant fraud upon the people. And I believe the pun was in fact intended at that time. And that I think gives a better idea of why the Smithsonian Institute is related to the cover up of giants throughout the history of North America. They're real, right? Giants, oh yeah. And the Smithsonian is covering them up very benignly was, because, you know, the Native Americans actually just get everything they treated to giants. That was a really roundabout way to say this. Yes. <laughs> I'm also a little disturbed that they're so, like, casually digging up burial mounds and sending the bones away. 
Well, you got to remember that they didn't really consider Native Americans people at the time, like on okay. par. Okay, I don't want to remember that, but you make it. And part of it too, them saying that they can no longer find these giants that were sent to them or these remains. Part of that is in 1990, they had to give back all these remains to the culture that they took them from because they said, wow, this was a really dick move to destroy all of their burial mounds and take all of their bones. Maybe they should have them. So part of that too is, oh, they don't have them anymore or they're hidden they had to give them back well yeah and at that point like you've already entered the poltergeist realm that you're getting a pretty decently heavy haunting next to those burial grounds that were robbed of their oh and also that was one of the controversies about the smithsonian is that it's haunted it should be noted that they returned all of the native burial artifacts and bones back to the people in the 1990s which was ended the haunting it just did. Simple as that. Right. Yeah. yeah, no reason to haunt anymore, so it stopped. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that shed some light on quite a few things. I should also make a point at this time that a lot of the conspiracy side and like Gaia TV, they'd like to bring up a man by the name of John Powell. He was a contributor to the Smithsonian Institute and the Powell Doctrine. But I find it completely unnecessary to talk about in this portion. If you want to learn more, go ahead. <laughs> but I feel like this sums it up perfectly. Great, that's a good point to make. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that I acknowledge that people bring up the name John Powell and I thought it was stupid. So I'm not going to do it. Okay, you won't find him here, folks. But that moves us on to the next controversy. Our, Chelsea, do you have any questions about this Giants? I don't think so. I mean, I'm always disappointed by a logical explanation. I'll admit it. And that's what that was. Thank you for grounding us. Grounding us and making sure that we know that this is another fringy mythology or belief that is grounded in genocide. Full of disappointment this podcast is. Yeah, the fringe. It's only two steps away from a confirmed genocide. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. no, no questions. Okay, this brings us to the next controversy that you will hear the Smithsonian Institute brought up with. And Chelsea, this one I think you will like. It is the discovery of Egyptian artifacts in the Grand Canyon. Right. I will like this one. And to this, we will go right back to the first article that was ever written on this topic. It was in the Arizona Gazette. It's the Monday evening edition, April 5th, 1909. The title of this article is Exploration Grand Canyon, Mysteries of Immense Rich Cavern Being Brought to Light. And this is a longer article, so just sit tight with it, okay? Okay. The latest news of the progress of the exploration of what is now regarded by scientists as not only the oldest archaeological discovery in the United States, but one of the most valuable in the world, which was mentioned some time ago in the Gazette, was brought to the city yesterday by G.E. Kincaid, the explorer who found the great underground citadel of the Grand Canyon during a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the Colorado in a wooden boat to Yuma several months ago. According to the story yesterday to the Gazette by Mr. Kincaid, the archaeologist of the Smithsonian Institute, which is financing the exploration, have made discoveries which almost conclusively prove that the race which inhabited this mysterious cavern hewn in solid rocks by human hands was of oriental origin, or possibly from Egypt tracing back to Ramses. If their theories are borne out of the translation of the tablets engraved with hieroglyphs, the mystery of the prehistoric people of North America, their ancient arts, who they were and whence they came, will be solved. Egypt and the Nile and Arizona and the Colorado will be linked by a historical chain running back to ages, which staggers the wildest fancy of the fictionists. Under the direction of Professor S.A. Jordan, the Smithsonian Institute is now prosecuting the most 
thorough exploration which will be continued until the last link in the chain has been forged. Nearly a mile underground, about 1480 feet below the surface, the long main passage had been delved into to find another mammoth chamber from which radiate scores of passageways like the spokes of a wheel. Several hundred rooms have been discovered, reached by passageways running from the main passage, one of them having been explored for 854 feet and another 634 feet. The recent find includes articles which have been known as native to this country and doubtlessly they had their origin in the Orient. War weapons, copper instruments, sharp-edged, and hard as steel indicate the high state of civilization reached by these strange people. So interested have these scientists become that preparations are being made to equip the camp for extensive studies and the force will be increased to 30 or 40 persons. Before going further into the cavern, better facilities for lighting have to be established for the darkness is dense and impenetrable for the average flashlight. In order to avoid being lost, wires have been strung from the entrance to all passageways leading directly to large chambers. How far this cavern extends, no one can guess, but it is now the belief of many that what has already been explored is merely the barracks, to use an American term, for the soldiers, and that far into the underworld will be found the main communal dwellings of the families and possibly other shrines. The perfect ventilation of the cavern, the steady draft that blows through, indicates that it has another outlet to the surface. Mr. Kincaid was the first white child born in Idaho and has been an explorer and hunter all his life. That's quite the claim to fame, hey? Just gonna say what? Okay. 30 years having been in the service of the Smithsonian Institute, even briefly recounting, his history sounds fabulous, almost grotesque. <laughs> This is a quote from him. First, I would impress that the cavern is almost inaccessible. The entrance is almost 1,486 feet down as sheer canyon wall. It is located on government land and no visitor will be allowed there under penalty of trespass. The scientists wish to work unmolested without fear of the archaeological discoveries being disturbed by curio or relic hunters. A trip there would be fruitless and the visitor would be sent on his way. I do just like that they say, hey, you're trespassing on your way. All they're gonna do. The story of how I found the cavern has already been recounted, but in a paragraph, I was journeying down the Colorado River in a boat, alone, looking for mineral. Some 42 miles up the river from El Tovar Crystal Canyon, I saw on the east wall stains in the sedimentary formation, about 2,000 feet above the riverbed. There was no trail to this point, but I finally reached it with great difficulty. Above a shelf, which hid it from the river, was the mouth of the cave. There are steps heading into the entrance some 30 yards from what was at the time the cavern was inhabited, the level of the river. When I saw the chisel marks on the walls inside the entrance, I became interested, secured my gun, and went in. During the trip, I went back several hundred feet along the main passage till I came to the main crypt, in which I discovered the mummies. One of these I stood up and photographed by flashlight. I gathered a number of relics which I carried down the Colorado to Yuma, from whence I shipped them to Washington with details of the discovery. Following this, the exploration was undertaken. The main passage is about 12 feet wide, narrowing to 9 feet towards the farther end. About 57 feet from the entrance, the first passage branch off to the right and left, along which on both sides are a number of rooms about the size of ordinary living rooms of today, though some are 30 to 40 square feet. These are entered by oval-shaped doors and are ventilated by round air spaces through the walls into the passages. I'm going to skip ahead just because it's very mundane archaeological stuff they're <laughs> talking about to the shrine that they're going to talk about. Over 100 feet from the entrance is a cross hall, several hundred feet long, in which was found the idol or image of the people's god sitting cross-legged with a lotus flower or lily at each hand. The cast of the faces 
is oriental, and the carvings show a skillful hand, and the entire is remarkably well preserved, as is everything in the cavern. The idol most resembles Buddha, though the scientists are not certain as to what religious worship it represents. Taking into consideration everything found thus far, it is possible that the worship most resembles the ancient people of Tibet. Surrounding this idol are smaller images, some beautiful in form, others crooked-necked and distorted shapes, symbolical probably of good and evil. There are two large cacti with protruding arms, one on each side of the days, on which the god squats. All this is carved out of the hard rock resembling marble. In the opposite corner of the cross hall were found tools of all description, made of copper. The people undoubtedly knew the lost art of hardening this metal, which has been sought by chemists for centuries without result. On a bench running around the workroom was some charcoal and other materials probably used in the process. There is also slag and stuff similar to mat, showing that these ancient people smelted ores, but so far no trace of where or how this was done has been discovered, nor the origin of the ore. Among other finds are vases or urns and cups of copper and gold made very artistic in design. Pottery work included enamel, ware, and glazed vessels. Another passageway leads to the granaries, such as are found in the oriental temples, and they contain seeds of various kinds. One of the very large storehouses has not been entered as it is 12 feet high and can be reached only from above. Two copper hooks extend to the edge, which indicates that some sort of ladder was attached. These granaries are rounded and the materials on which they are constructed, I think, is very hard cement. A grey metal is also found in this cavern, which puzzles the scientists. For its identity has not been established, it resembles platinum. Strewn promiscuously over the floor everywhere are what people call cat eyes or tiger eyes, a yellow stone of no great value. Each one is engraved with the head of a Malay type. On all the urns, on the walls, over the doorways, and tablets of stone, which were found by the images, are mysterious hieroglyphics, the key to which the Smithsonian Institution hopes yet to discover. These writings resemble those found on the rocks about this valley. The engravings on the tablets probably have something to do with the religion of the people. Similar hieroglyphs have been found in the peninsula of Yucatan, but these are not found in the Orient. Some believe that these cave dwellers built the old canals in the Salt River Valley. Among the pictorial writings, only two animals are found. One is the prehistoric type. The tomb or crypt in which the mummies are found is one of the largest of the chambers. The walls slanting back at an angle of about 35 degrees, these are tiers of mummies, each one occupying a separate hewn shelf. At the head of each is a small bench on which is found copper cups, pieces of broken swords. Some of the mummies are covered with clay and are all wrapped in a bark fabric. The urns of cups on the lower tiers are crude. While as the higher shelves are reached, the urns are finer in design, showing an interstage of civilization. It is worthy of note that all the mummies examined so far have been male. No children or females buried here. This leads to the belief that the interior sections are warrior barracks. Among the discoveries, no bones of animals have been found. No skin, no clothing, nor bedding. Many of the rooms are bare but for the water vessels. One room, about 400 to 700 feet, was probably the main dining hall, for cooking utensils are found here. What these people lived on is a problem, though it is presumed that they came south for the winter and farmed in the valleys going back north in the summer, upwards of 50,000 people could have lived in the cavern comfortably. One theory is that the present Indian tribe found in Arizona are descendants or serfs or slaves of the people which inhabited the caves. Undoubtedly, a good many thousands of years before the Christian era, people lived here which reached a high state of civilization. The chronology of human history is full of gaps. Professor Jordan is much enthused over this discovery and believes what he has found will prove 
proved incalculable value in archaeological work. One thing I have spoken of may be of interest, there is one chamber, the passageway to which is not ventilated, and when we approach it, a deadly snaky smell struck us. Our light would not penetrate the gloom, and until stronger ones are available, we will not know what the chamber contains. Some say snakes, but others boo-hoo this idea and think that it may contain a deadly gas or chemicals used by the ancients. I would really hope at this time that there are no snakes, as it's thousands of years old in theory. <laughs> no sounds are heard, but it smells snaky just the same. No idea what a snaky smell is. The whole underground institution gives one of shaky nerves to creeps. The gloom is like a weight on one's shoulders and our flashlights and candles only make the darkness blacker. Imagination can revel in conjectures and ungodly daydreams back through the ages that have elapsed till the mind reels dizzily in space. Harin Hiran, an Egyptologist, believed in the Indian origin of the Egyptians and the discovery of the Grand Canyon may throw further light on the human evolution and prehistoric ages. I skipped a bit of the end just because it talks about Native American culture, but I think we got the gist of that story. Pretty groundbreaking, hey Chelsea? Yeah, yeah. A little confused by a few parts, but I feel like you're going to take us through it a little. A little bit, yeah. It accuses a Smithsonian Institution member scientist of like actually investigating it, and it just dies out from there, as I don't know how many of you have heard of the Egyptian artifacts that they've pulled out of the Grand Canyon. And almost as if they're covering it up. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't really just only Egyptian. <laughs> You no, know, it was all like, over the map. You got some Tibet, you got like a Buddha. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you got a snake room. Yeah. The mind runs wild with all the potential that was in there and the specificity oh, yeah. that they were able to bring. 1,486 feet or 1,482 feet exactly down. <laughs> yeah. They were measuring the rooms. They found some mummies. Pretty cool. Yeah, and there is some contradictions within that, that it housed a culture right it housed its own culture but it was all artifacts from various cultures yes on the world yeah you know it was an amalgamation of all the people who just happened to meet there on wednesday nights yeah yeah but they were all it was potlucks and they you know, kind of just built <laughs> yeah. from there they brought their own artifacts yeah Chelsea, I don't know if you noticed this right off the bat. When I introduced this article in the Arizona Gazette, mm -hmm. I didn't say the name of the author. And that's because there is no attached author to this article. Okay. Suspicious. A little Wasn't bit. the staff at the Arizona Gazette? No, they didn't even put that. Nobody wanted their tits generally take the blame. And it goes from here. I found a good article breaking this down. The holes in the Arizona Gazette article emerge as soon as you start to examine its basics. For one, there is no recorded existence of anybody working at the Smithsonian Institution by the name of Kincaid or Jordan. Okay. Who are, you know, the people investigating it for the Smithsonian. That's both a very unique name and a very general name. <laughs> You could probably find a Jordan anywhere. In the same gazette in March, they had also like published an article about Pinkade's adventures down the Colorado, but there's no mention of any Egyptian artifacts or a cave that he had found. Okay. And in 2000, a representative of the Smithsonian Institution, not the Institute as it is called throughout most of this article and why I had to talk about earlier that it is the Smithsonian Institution, not the Institute. <laughs> Ah, okay. Because it is inaccurately named throughout this article. They responded to one of these inquiries in an email exchange, affirming their position that the story is in fact a hoax, which they would say. They would if they're hiding it. This is the article that this comes from. Yes. It, you can't find any 
trace earlier, but there are a lot of references to this article. Okay. There are a lot that don't claim this one as its reference point, but they basically say the exact same thing. They just don't reference this article and it come out later. So it makes sense. So this is their statement. The Smithsonian's Department of Anthropology has searched its files without finding any mention of a Jordan, Kincaid, or a lost Egyptian civilization in Arizona. Nevertheless, the story continues to be repeated in books and articles. End quote. Haley Johnson, president of the Grand Canyon Historical Society, also speaks to the inconsistencies in the original article. There's images in it, which are clear Clearly fake, she says. In 2009, an article in the Old Pioneer magazine, published by the Grand Canyon Historical Society author Dan Lago, examined more than a dozen newspaper articles from the time and found that most ignored the Gazette story entirely with only one paper reprinting it without comment. The one paper that did comment, the Coconino Sun in Flagstaff, Arizona, pointed to a likely culprit behind this hoax story, Joe Mulhotten a traveling salesman who became famous in the 1870s and 1880s for deceiving newspapers into publishing fake articles. Joe Mulhotten is known in every city of the United States and has probably caused more trouble in newspaper offices than any other man in the country, the New York Times wrote in 1891. Oh my God. His wild stories written in the most plausible style have more than once caused special correspondents to hurry from coast to coast to investigate some wonderful occurrence which only existed in the imagination of the great liar. Again, who would have benefited greatly from a liar's club. <laughs> and I can't believe how often this comes up. <laughs> he just needed TV too, let's face it. Yeah, it's true. And yeah, I think that at least explains that controversy. And those are the ones we're going to be talking about today. That's why the Smithsonian Institute comes up so often for cover-ups is mostly giants and ancient pre-civilization to North America that they're hiding from everyone else. Pretty much every time you look at it, it can be traced directly back to a hoax, though. Oh, no. Or a misidentification. I was hoping for something more. Like, yeah, they totally do. Verified, there's giants. Yeah. Outside of the three giants that they have, they're all fakes. <laughs> well, that was both educational and disappointing. I agree fully. That's just how it goes with a little bit of genocide thrown in, which Great. just is how we do it sometimes. That's just about every Journey to the Fringe episode. Yeah. Chelsea, any questions before we end this one? Nope, I've gotten them all out as we've gone along on this one. Well, with that, I have been Taylor here with Chelsea. We are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode.